I regret that we meet in this way. You and I are of a kind in a different reality. I could have called you friend. Bridge to all decks. It is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I am so excited to get into our episode today. Balance of Terror has always been one of my favorites. And I was starting to think because I so enjoyed Corbamite and Where No Man Has Gone Before and Naked Time. And they're such great episodes. And I went, is Balance of Terror still going to be head and shoulders above those? And for me, absolutely it is. I absolutely love Balance of Terror. Okay, so so everyone listening, this is how much Steve loves Balance of Terror. Like <laughs> like way before, I would say months before we decided to to go full full speed ahead with this. He just sent me an email one day and he said, "I'm rewatching Balance of Terror and this is such a great episode and I really think that we should do a Star Trek podcast together." And and then when we made the decision to to do Enterprise Incidents before it was even called Enterprise Incidents, Send me a text one day. He says, I cannot wait to talk about Balance of Terror. And here we are. We are at that (laughs) point. We are talking. We are doing our Enterprise Incidents episode on Balance of Terror, which I agree with you 100,000% if you can even go that high. (laughs) That Balance of Terror is an episode. Not only is it one of the very best episodes of Star Trek, the original series, not only is Balance of Terror one of the very best episodes of Star Trek ever produced over the course of these last 55 years, that's more than 800 hours of Star Trek, but Balance of Terror, I'm going to say it, is one of the greatest episodes of dramatic television, dramatic television ever produced. This is an episode that holds up, that resonates so strong stronger today than it did in 66. It resonates for different reasons. The performances across the board are fantastic. The writing is great. And I'll say it again, the cinematography by the amazing Jerry Finnerman is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Steve, like, what are your earliest memories of, of Balance of Terror? What struck out at you when, when you were watching Star Trek as a, as a younger younger gentlemen and like like what did you think about the terror as a kid i think this episode of television by the way i literally have the same thing in my notes might be one of the greatest episodes of television of all time Mm. um i put it up there with great episodes from the west wing or mash or hill street blues or you know any of those shows i think it's fantastic and i think this episode is fundamental to how i look at the world like the idea that the enemy are like us Mm-hmm. that we need to, that we can understand that we can learn about them throughout. That is so basic to who I am, how I think it's affected so much of me as a writer. Like the very first good play I did was a play about racism on college campuses. And I did produced it when I was at Berkeley and it was all about learning. It was about uh, African-American fraternities and white fraternities and the conflicts that arose between them. And the whole point of the play was, Look at both of these groups of people. They they sometimes are against each other, but actually they're so much more the same than they are different. And if only they could understand each other. And it's, it's Balance of Terror. It's a hugely it's influential thing on me. How about you? Uh, well, well, I this is an episode I have always 
really liked a lot. I, I, I was always excited when, when I was watching Star Trek in syndication on channel 17 in Philadelphia at seven o'clock at night when I was, when I was a kid and, and they were showing the episodes in production order. And I always knew when we were on the second season, when we were on the third season, we would go back to the first. I would always get excited because I always knew that meant that balance of terror is coming up. But here's the thing, uh, Steve. So when I first got into Star Trek, the, the episodes that I discovered, the cycle was in the beginning of the second season. So when I, when I saw Mirror Mirror for the first time, so I mean, and look, Star Trek season two is probably the greatest season of Star Trek ever produced over the course of 55 years. But so, so then I saw Journey to Babel and I see this guy playing Spock's father. Mm. You know, I didn't know his name. Of course, his name is Mark Leonard, but I saw this guy playing Spock's father. So, so then when it came back around to the first season and I was watching Balance of Terror and you get to the point where you see the Romulan commander, I went, oh, that's Spock's father. It's Spock's father. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> it actually is. Absolutely is not. Um, of course, it's the same actor playing him, Mark Leonard, who is a, a staple in Star Trek. I mean, the way he played the Romulan commander, he played a Klingon, he played a Vulcan, and, and he played Sarek many, many times. He even played Sarek in the episode for the next generation entitled Sarek. But Balance Terror, like you said, like you said, one of the great things about this episode, and there are so many great things about it, is the way that Kirk and the Romulan commander are more alike than unalike. They respect each other without even having met yet. They're in each other's heads because they think alike. And the way this episode is such a, well, clearly it is, it is inspired by the 1957 classic movie, The Enemy Below. And also uh, the year later, there was a similar film called Run Silent, Run Deep about a, a warship and a submarine playing uh, cat and mouse, so to speak. Right. Can, I, can I tell you something real fast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that I had seen The Enemy Below, but believe it or not, I had never seen Run Silent, Run Deep until two days ago. I went, you know, I got to watch this for Balance of Terror. Of course, I always knew that was – that movie is so good. That That's is an great. amazingly good movie. <laughs> Directed by Robert Wise, who's obviously edited Citizen Kane and did Sound of Music and West Side Story. And, and Star, Star Trek, Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, but and, and Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster, Jack Warden, uh, Don Rickles is in it. That movie is – fantastic it is a beautifully made film just well, yeah well but you know one of the things that i've that i've so enjoyed about about doing this series with you steve is that of course you know i've seen these episodes hundreds of times and that's not even like an exaggeration like oh i've seen it hundreds <laughs> of times i mean literally i've seen this episode hundreds of times and to have a new perspective a new way of looking, a fresh perspective on an episode like where no man has gone before, Corbomite Maneuver, The Enemy Within, and, and especially The Naked Time. I mean, like just talking about that episode with you, you know, this you, this this massive film buff that you are and, and thinking about the movie The Thing, the John Carpenter version, sure. and like maybe the disease is like inspired by that. But anyway, but with Balance of Terror, there is so much about this episode that that clearly was inspired by the times. I mean, you have this, this uh, potential war brewing out between the Federation and the Romulans, but the, 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 the episode was supposed to mirror the uh, division between North Vietnam 
and South Vietnam with the demilitarized mm. zone. And if, if that wasn't enough drama to go on in one episode, you've got this navigator who is full of bigotry at a time when bigotry was, and sadly still is rampant in this country. And this added drama on top of the drama is just one of the things, or two of the things rather, that take this episode to a, a, an incredible new level. So when you watched it again for Enterprise Incidents, like how did you feel when it was over? Blown away, honestly. Honestly blown away. Like, because uh, because the difference, and we, you know, this is we've said this almost every episode. There is a difference between watching these episodes casually, which I have done like you over and over and over again, and really watching. And in particular, things like the cinematography, I was really, really paying attention. It's phenomenal. You know, mm -hmm. moments in the performances I hadn't really seen. Little background things. I think this episode's great. And I got to say, and, and we, I've said this a few times already on other episodes that we've done, but William Shatner in this episode, he is pitch perfect. Everything about his performance is absolutely top notch, not just by Star Trek standards, but by, by the, the, the great acting performances of dramatic television. And I love how this episode, just like with The Naked Time and with The Enemy Within, you know, we see a different side of Kirk. We just feel the burden of command. And, and we'll, we'll get to a, a scene that I cherish between Kirk and McCoy. But this episode actually aired. It was the 14th episode of Star Trek to air. 14th. It aired on December 15th, 1966. It was written by Paul Schneider. It was directed by Vincent McAvity. And Vincent McAvity okay, this is the first of six Star Trek episodes that he directed. He also directed Dagger of the Mind, Miri, Patterns of Force, The Omega Glory, and Spectre of the Gun. Mm, but way beyond, what Steve, wait till you hear the vast list of other great television shows over the decades that Vincent McAvity has directed. He, he directed The Untouchables, he directed five episodes of The Lieutenant, which mm. was the series that Gene Roddenberry produced before he produced Star Trek. He directed 45 episodes, 45 episodes of the classic series Gunsmoke. 45. Wow. That is amazing. He directed episodes of Eight is Enough, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, <laughs> two episodes of T.J. Hooker reuniting him with <laughs> William Shatner, 40 episodes of Simon and Simon, 28 episodes of Murder, She Wrote, and, and he directed the first Wonder Woman TV movie where Kathy Lee Crosby played wow. Wonder Woman. And that episode was written by John D.F. Black, who wrote The Naked Time. Wow. Wow. It's, but so, I, this is where I kind of wish I could go and like watch some of those episodes because I love Simon and Simon. I told that's totally in my era, you know, and those are in murder. She wrote Gunsmoke. these and to direct 45 episodes of a TV show that has, that's, that's almost two full years of that show. That's right. Direct, that's right. That's and, amazing. And, and he actually directed the pilot for the untouchables, uh, uh -huh. Elliot Ness series. And, and he won a DGA award for it. So this episode was filmed over six and a half days 
Uh, it was the ninth episode to film. And because we were going in production order, that makes perfect sense because we are on uh, our ninth episode of Enterprise Incidents. So it was filmed between July 20th and July 28th, 1966. So every episode we've done so far, I would say how much the episode cost. So at this point, I would always say to you, Steve, that the budget for each first season episode of Star Trek, the budget that they had to not cross was $193,500. And a couple of the episodes we talked about came in way under budget because they were, they were bottle shows. They only took place on the Enterprise. They didn't have a lot of special effects. So $193,500 was the threshold. Balance of Terror cost $236,436. That number again, $236,436, which made it almost $43,000 over budget. And this is why it was the 14th episode to air because the visual effects, especially with that model of the Romuel Moore, uh, the bird of prey, which was designed by uh, Matt Jeffries. I mean, the, the visual effects, I mean, even by 1966 standards were, were very much there. And the score was composed by Fred Steiner. It was his fourth of 12 Star Trek scores. The score was recorded on September 20th, 1966. And he recorded his score for Balance of Terror the same day he recorded his score for the Corbomite Maneuver. Now, the one thing, this is the first episode where the, in addition to the new music that was recorded, it was not a completely new score. So there are parts of the episode where they use stock music from previous episodes. This is the first episode of Star Trek in production order to do that. Mm. And uh, because, you know, it does cost money to record scores and this episode was already over budget. But uh, Fred Steiner uh, is obviously an amazing composer responsible for so many great scores. But the music cue that we're most familiar with was the one that was repurposed for Mirror Mirror. And whenever I see the Romulan ship, you know, it's also the cue that was used for the Mirror Universe Enterprise at the beginning of each act in Mirror Mirror. This is a, the first appearance of the Romulans, the first episode of Star Trek to deal with racial bigotry. And there are other firsts that we will get into, but absolutely Balance of Terror is a, 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 an absolute classic in every sense of the word. It's provocative, it's timely, it's an allegory for the 60s, it's an allegory for the 21st century, 2021. And uh, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. It's funny that the, the thing about the reusing of the score is obviously there are, there are cliche pieces of music that are used many, many times in Star Trek. I, and maybe this is just my love of the show coming out is like, I like it. I find it comforting. There's certain cues that did get overused by the time we get through the third season, <laughs> but, but it's like, that's part of Star Trek is certain musical cues. They're just, I'm used to them. Um, but, but by the way, I have one thing that's slightly off topic. You want to know what occurred to me as we sat down to do this? What's that? I went, Oh, this is our, this is our ninth episode and there are 80 episodes of Star Trek. And that means we are 10% of the way 
uh, through our journey in the original series. Oh my goodness! Wow, that that's that's amazing, and uh, I, I love that we're we're at a point in the first season of Star Trek when the series is is hitting its stride, and I'll, I'll say that especially with regards to Leonard Nimoy, his performance as Spock is really is really taken shape now. I mean, this is the Spock that we've uh, will will see through the rest of his. Uh, performances in in the original series anyway and also thing to note steve is that when the remastered version of the original series first came out in the 2000s in 2006 it was broadcast on on tv it was broadcast in syndication and balance of terror was the first episode of the remastered star trek to to be broadcast on TV, and it was the week of September sixteenth, two thousand six. I remember mm. it was on it. It was on at twelve thirty on a Sunday night, and I stayed up to watch it because I couldn't wait to see how the new visual effects, especially with the Romulan bird of prey, would look. So, uh, it's but back in nineteen sixty six, the very first story outline written by Paul Schneider was dated April fourteenth, nineteen sixty six. Now, Paul Schneider's first draft, his first draft teleplay, came a little over a month later on May 20th. Story editor John D.F. Black did a script polish dated July 2nd, and Gene Roddenberry did two rewrites on the script, the second of which was dated July 18th, 1966. And when this episode was filmed, on July 19th, the day before it started filming, astronaut Michael Collins performed the spacewalk outside the Gemini 10 space capsule. Wow. And I love that like Star Trek was, was, was airing and being produced while the actual space race was going on. And then on July 21st in Geneva, Switzerland, the United States and the Soviet Union agreed to a treaty article that would ban any nation from claiming sovereignty over any portion of outer space, including the moon and the planets. So back in the 60s, they're saying it's a free, it's a free uh, solar system. And then on July 27th, for the first time in 58 years, liquor was legally served in Mississippi, the last of the United States to have repealed its prohibition laws. Wow. So we could both get drunk and go to outer space without having to get in a fight. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's two great things. It's interesting, by the way, because when we were younger, the idea of militarizing space was very controversial. And now we have a space force and yeah. militarizing yeah. space seems to be a thing that is happening. Uh, not just in the United States, but with China as well. Uh, this is, So that's just a different different world. I hope they end up with Starfleet, that that's the end result of all this and not something else. Well, do you, do you think it's a coincidence, Steve, that the logo for this Space Force looks a little bit like the insignia from Star Trek? The Delta know. Shield, they call I it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, like, the Space Force is such a joke. <laughs> Come on. Is anyone really taking that seriously? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess they are. <laughs> Billions of dollars are going towards it. So, yes, they are taking it seriously. Um, shall we get into this episode? Oh, let's finally. Get, I mean, we've been talking about, mm-hmm. about doing this episode for so long that here we are. We are we're going to do our deep dive. And uh, let's, uh, let's go full speed ahead, my friend. 
we start it, you know, with the teaser in a very interesting way, something we've never seen on the Enterprise, which is we're at a wedding. The ceremony will be carried on all viewing screens, sir. Good. And I believe this set is the transporter room that's been redressed to be the chapel. And we see the groom standing there. But we're also going to add tension to the situation because right before the wedding, Kirk checks on something and we hear that there's been no answer from earth outpost two and now earth outpost three has gone silent. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what that means. There's something big and serious going on, but we're not going to deal with that. Instead, we're going to deal with this wedding and Kirk goes up because as captain of a ship, he gets to preside over the ceremony. The bride comes up. This is Angela Martin. She uh, kneels down before the ceremony, which I think is an important detail that's going to come back later. Picked up on a detail of her kneeling that comes back later in an incredible way that really stays with you. And Kirk says, Since the days of the first wooden vessels, all shipmasters have had one happy privilege, that of uniting two people in the bonds of matrimony. Now, now here's the thing. So the way that Kirk is trying to keep, keep the drama, keep the tension on the DL, because there's nothing to worry about until we know that there's something to worry about. Robert Tomlinson was played by Stephen Mines. Angela Martin was played by Barbara Baldivin. Now, Barbara Baldivin was married to the uh, casting director for Star Trek, uh, uh, Joseph D'Agosta is his name, and he was resistant to cast his wife in Star Trek, but she was actually in a few episodes. She was also in Shore Leave, and she was in the very last episode of Star Trek, Turnabout Intruder. And so we are gathered here today with you, Angela Martin, and you, Robert Tomlinson, in the sight of your fellows, in accordance with our laws and our many beliefs. There are Star Trek fans who have gotten married and have said these exact words that Kirk is saying, that they have, like, people people have gotten married at Star Trek conventions where whoever's officiating the wedding will say the words that Kirk said until he was interrupted, and then they'll just sort of fill in the blanks with their own version of what they think came next. But nope. even something as simple as that in an episode like this you know, we're not even into the the real drama of the episode, but this is something that got picked up and was was cherished by Star Trek fans for so many years that they made sure that they could say as much of this as they could at their own wedding. That's that's amazing. And and there's one very small but I think very important detail in what Kirk says. He says, in the sight of your fellows, in accordance of our laws and many beliefs. In the sight of, in a wedding ceremony, usually is in the sight of God. Mm, mm. He says in the sight of our fellows. And I think that is a key choice. I think it's on purpose. And I think it says, makes a statement about what is going on at this time in the future. Is that it's not that there aren't religions, because we hear about there are many beliefs, but it's that we are not endorsing a religion. You know, this is a secular show for the most part. And I think that's a really key, but very small choice. Yeah, it's interesting that that over the, the course of these three seasons, that whenever they've, whenever religion came up in some way, like in, in Who Mourns for Outer Nights, when, 
when Kirk tells Apollo, we have no need for gods, we find, we find the one quite sufficient. And then in Bread and Circuses, where they realize at the end that the sun, uh, uh, the children of the sun are, it's uh, not the sun, the sun of the sky, yeah. it's the sun of God. Um, it, but it is interesting when, when they do go there, it stands out when they do because they did it so little, but they did it at the right moments. And that was an interesting, interesting perspective I never thought about before because I never knew what that, what that meant. In the sight of usually means God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know uh, that. Um, and, and it's a great ending to a teaser because, of course, we don't get to have our wedding ceremony. We're interrupted. Earth Outpost 4 reports they're under attack. Space vessel, identity unknown. Pull ahead. All decks, condition red. And I love the final moment. The last two people left in the chapel are the bride and the groom. And they share one kind of romantic moment. And then they go off to do their duty because they're part of the crew. And they know that that's what they have to do, even in the midst of their wedding day. They're going to go yeah. do their duty. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you're right. The, the camera, like they're still still, like everyone else starts running away from the trap chapel and they're, they're kind of the last ones standing there and they're holding hands and they look at each other and then they let go and they go off in their direction. And the way that, the way that this teaser ends, this is a friggin' teaser. Like, this is how you do a teaser. Like, like when you look at the teasers for the later Star Trek shows, and again, I am not knocking the, the later Star Trek shows, but they just never did teasers like this before. And this, this is like, you know, holy Toledo, like red, like all decks alert and the music sting is so dramatic. And, you know, the, the teaser started off so innocently and it right. ended so strong, all in just a couple of minutes. And we start off Act 1, and we hear that they've been patrolling this thing called the neutral zone between planets Romulus and Remus. I love that the choice of Romulus and Remus, because those, of course, are the founders of Rome, the legendary founders of Rome, and they are twins. And what I always think about with this is, oh, what it really is going to be is that the Vulcans and the Romulans are twins. So the mm. fact that they chose this idea of twins as the name of the planet works really well. We're on the bridge. They have a new navigator, Mr. Styles. That seems to be a position that they have trouble filling on the <laughs> Enterprise. Yeah, they're not going to get it right until the until the second season when Chekhov sits in. But when we pick up on Act One, and you hear the captain's lock, and you're on the bridge, like everybody's a professional here. They're at their station, and Kirk is concerned. He's walking around the bridge, and I love that he that he walks up to Scotty. He was like going to give him an order, Scotty. I've already talked to my engine room, so we'll get more speed out of it. Everybody's doing their thing. Like, Kirk, before he even gives an order, everybody's on the ball. And from this point, like, the, the, the pacing and the energy and the drama and the suspense and the intensity and the writing and the performances from start to finish, Balance of Terror had it turned all the way up. This is an episode that went to eleven. And one of the things that's so amazing is that in great filmmaking and great screenwriting, everything is there for a reason. There's nothing wasted. And so right from the beginning, we're asking for information on the attacking vessel because we don't know anything. And Mr. Stiles says, can't be much doubt who's attacking, sir. And that immediately on his first line, we get, oh, there's something going on here. There's a history there. There is a history for him to say, can't be much doubt who's attacking, Cap. He's already, he's already judged the situation based on his own past. 
And that past is going to rear its ugly head in a very big way in just a few moments. And we get a little bit of information on the neutral zone. And Kirk says, This is the captain speaking. In our next action, we can risk neither miscalculation nor error by any man aboard. Listen carefully, science officer. And then Spock gets on and explains what this is, that there are these, there's this zone between us and the Romulans. There's Earth outposts along this to guard it. There was a war with the Romulans over a century ago, and he says... Conflict was fought by our standards today with primitive atomic weapons and in primitive space vessels. Which allowed no quarter, no captives, nor was there even ship-to-ship visual communication. Therefore, no human, Romulan, or ally has ever seen the other. So they've never even seen each other, which is a crazy kind of war. And then Spock says, Earth believes the Romulans to be warlike, cruel, treacherous, and only the Romulans know what they think of Earth. I think that is a great line. But right after Spock addresses the crew and explains the situation in a way that also explains, like, we're the crew. Like, everybody watching is a crew member on the Enterprise because Spock is addressing us the way he is addressing the, the 428 crew members on the Enterprise. So when, when he turns it back over to Kirk, what he says is that this vessel will be considered expendable. I mean, they were just about to have a wedding. And now just moments later, he's saying that where we are, what our position is in this potential conflict it might mean the enterprise has to sacrifice itself and everyone on board. And when he says this vessel and these outposts will be considered expendable, and it's really, really quick, you know, the way that the the scene is cut, but Uhura shoots Captain Kirk a look like, are you kidding me? And like the severity of the situation is made completely clear to the crew. We have a duty to perform, even if that duty means the end of us. The stakes are so high because what we learn is the stakes actually go even beyond the Enterprise because the decisions the Enterprise makes might cost war. You know, we've had peace, over a century of peace with these people. And if we make the wrong move, it could go back to this incredible bloody war. And there's more to unpack here too that I think is so interesting, which is that, we have these opinions about these people that we've never seen. And racism is common in war. That is a normal, not only is it a normal thing that happens naturally, it's also a thing that governments tend to exploit in order to get us to really hate those other people. It's much easier to recruit and to get people to go off to fight people that are monstrous than it is to get people that seem like us. And so this idea of And I love the final line of Spock's where he says, and only the Romulans know what they think of Earth. I think Mm -hmm. that line is the first clue that even though we're characterizing these people as warlike and treacherous, that in fact, we're going to show something else. The other thing to, and so, and this applies in two places, I think. One is, obviously, we're in the middle of the Cold War. Obviously, we characterize the Russians in a certain way. The name, the Iron Curtain, is really related to the neutral zone. There is a no man's land in at the Berlin Wall at Checkpoint Charlie. You know, that, that's just like the outpost. That's one thing that's going on. But this is also the middle of Vietnam. And exactly. there's a growing movement, which is wanting to think of them not as 
monstrous communists, but as people like us, as people that are having in the middle of a revolution. And so all of this is playing right in this beginning of this episode. It's it's touching on all these points. And another thing we find out is like, we ask the question, like after a century, what's their ship going to look like? And of course, Styles knows. knows. <laughs> They're painted like a giant bird of prey. I had no idea that history was your specialty. Family history. There was a Captain Styles in the space service then. Two commanders, several junior officers. All lost in that war, sir. He's already riled up about it. He's all, he's clearly made his presence known. Usually navigators don't say a whole lot, okay, especially if they're not played by a series regular. And the actor's name is uh, Paul Comey, is terrific. Uh, he really, really gave a great performance in this. I, I remember he was also in an episode of The Twilight Zone called People Are Alike All Over. Uh, mm. that, that also really stood out. He was in that episode with Roddy McDowell. And Kirk, cool, calm, and collected, looks at him, stares him down, and says, Their war, Mr. Stiles. Not yours. Don't forget it. What's so great, and again, it's something, and this is a thing I'm really noticing on watching this series this time, is watch Kirk as the observer. You know, we think of him as the as the person who acts the most, but he's watching Styles in the moment before that. And then he makes the command choice to fairly gently but firmly settle him down. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, 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 don't hey, this is this is their war. You know, we're not at war yet. So just know your place, mister. We get to our first outpost and find out that it's been, that the whole asteroid has been pulverized. All battle stations, Mr. Sue. Battle stations. All hands to battle stations. You mentioned this earlier, is that in these early episodes, man, there's a lot of crew. When we say battle stations, we got a lot of people running around doing a lot of stuff. Um, and we go down to make sure we need to make sure that things are powered up in the phaser room. And so we actually go to this room, mm -hmm. the phaser room and who works in the phaser room, but our bride and groom. And I love this little scene. Happy wedding day. Almost. 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 <laughs> Her character in just this one line is fantastic. Don't get off my hook this easily. I'm going to marry you, mister. Battle or phaser weapons notwithstanding. But then his response is like, uh, meanwhile, anyway, I'm still your superior officer. So get with it, mister. And then the look that she like, she kind of like looks down and was like, you know, you you weren't with me in the moment, <laughs> fiance, you know, uh, it was like, like she seemed a little annoyed at his uh, at his response to that. So there's something I want to bring up just structurally in terms of screenwriting is that there is a difference between traditional A stories and B stories, which you see often in television and separate threads all supporting the same story. So in an A story, B story, you would have two different stories. Like if we're on next generation and we have to negotiate some peace treaty and that's the A story. And at the same time, you know, there's a crew member that Deanna is working with on some, you know, like Lieutenant Barkley or something. Yeah, and, yeah. and in traditional A stories and B stories, sometimes they're so separate that you could just pull the B story out completely and it wouldn't affect the A story and stick it in a different episode and swap B stories and it wouldn't make any difference. And by the way, that, that is, happened a lot. That happened a lot in the next generation. Yeah. 
it's one of the things that I don't like as much is that because it almost because in those cases, it almost feels like, man, we didn't have enough pages to fill our episode. So mm-hmm. we need an eight, eight minutes that we can go on something else. That is not what's happening here. There are a whole bunch of different stories going on, but every single one of those threads supports the general story. So this is one of our threads. Martine and Tomlinson were about to get married and they didn't, their wedding got delayed. Sir, regaining contact with Outpost 4. Switching the speakers. Outpost 4. Do you read me, Enterprise? And as Kirk engages Commander Hansen, the level of urgency and the level of, the, the, the level of panic in Hansen's voice. Unknown weapon. Completely destroyed. Even though we were alerted. Had our deflector shield on maximum. Hit by enormous power. If they hit us again with our deflector shield gone, do you read me, Enterprise? We see a close-up. There's a close-up on Kirk and Spock, on Shatner and Nimoy, as they hear the panic in Hansen's voice. They're still too far away. Can you locate the intruder for us? Negative. It seems to have disappeared somehow. I have you on my screen now, switching to visual. Tie us in. Hide in, sir. And Hansen is saying, like, Enterprise, something coming on our viewing screen. Coming at us fast. Lock us under your screen. Switching. Can you see it, Enterprise? As he's saying that, we slowly see the sort of fade in that there was just empty space. And then suddenly, this object starts to take up the screen. And it looks like another vessel. And it fires a big blast of energy against Outpost 4. And there's a big flash of light. And Outpost 4 does not survive. And then the image on the Enterprise view screen is of the Romulan ship, this this vessel, disappearing again. This is the first example for me of not liking the remastered effects as much as the original. I do not like this design of this ship. I don't understand. This is one they seem to change more than any of the other. And you don't see the bird of prey on the actual painted bird on the vessel. And I don't know why they changed it. Well, well, one thing about the remastered effects, this was the first episode to air of the remastered series. And this was also probably one of the first episodes that they worked on. The first couple of episodes were uh, the remastered effects were not that great. But then when they got good, they got really good like yeah. with tomorrow's yesterday and mirror mirror, or I'm sorry, a uh, uh, doomsday machine was, was fantastic. And Galileo seven was also a really good one where the, where the, where the new effects actually enhanced the episode. But with, with balance of terror, I remember, you know, this is an episode that I would absolutely prefer to watch the original effects over the remastered ones because they just didn't have it down yet. First thing we start talking about is this idea of an an invisibility cloak. And what Spock says is that it's theoretically possible, but it takes a lot of power. And that's something that's going to come back later. We also hear that, and of course, in Star Trek, we never know exactly what these things mean, but we have, we have them on sensors. We can sense them, but we can't see them. And so what is the accuracy of our sensors and how that's, that's, there's certain technologies in Star Trek that they play a little fast and loose with, depending on what's most dramatic for the episode. His heading is now 111, Mark 14. The exact heading a Romulan vessel would take, Jim, toward the neutral zone and home. 
about to set in a heading and Kirk says, set a parallel course and Styles argues. Don't you mean interception course, sir? And like Styles is like completely out of line because he wants to go after him. He doesn't want to dilly dally around here. And this is what's so great is that you get this character right away. It's really good screenwriting. It's really good performance. And Kirk explains, no, no, I want it to seem like we're a reflection, like an echo, that we don't want to bring a lot of attention to ourselves. And then Styles, with a lot of intensity, says, Captain, may I respectfully remind the captain what has happened? The Romulans have crossed the neutral zone, attacked our outpost, killed our men. And he rolls over the captain. Mr. Stiles. Add to that the fact that it was a sneak attack. Mr. Stiles, are you questioning my orders? Negative, sir. I'm pointing out that we could have Romulan spies aboard this ship. So he's also paranoid. And rightly so, because even Sulu chimes in. I agree, sir. Respectfully recommend all decks maintain security alert. And Kirk is listening to two of his top lieutenants mm-hmm. on the bridge, both of them driving the Enterprise. You know, you don't want to piss off the person driving the Enterprise. And and he says, OK, all right. Two people have chimed in saying that this is a legitimate concern that we could have Romulan spies aboard the Enterprise. So he he calls for a security alert. And now we get this moment. We overhear that the Romulans are sending some kind of message. Spock is trying to decode it. He realizes that he might be able to get a picture on the bridge and get it on the screen. And the camera tracks with Kirk as he walks towards the screen. The music is building. The tension is building. The Romulan bridge fades in, but the Romulans have their back to camera. And then we see a centurion walk by, and then Mark Leonard turns into camera in an incredibly dramatic reveal, and he looks just like a Vulcan. Unbelievable. And the reactions go around the room. Styles stands up. There is a very dramatic camera pushing on Spock as he reacts. His, I love his performance, Nimoy's performance in this moment of absorbing this and being kind of amused isn't the right word, but intrigued. I was surprised that we did not have a fascinating here. And then Kirk looks towards the view screen, looks back at Spock. And then we have this great two shot with Kirk looking forward and Styles turning back and staring at Spock. That's an image that perfectly explains what's happening in the episode. And this is the image that closes out the act. And the way you described the, the building of that scene, like when you see the Romulan bridge fade in on the view screen of the Enterprise and you can't get a good look at, at these people just yet because of the amazing cinematography done by Jerry Finnerman here. Uh, but when the Centurion walks away from the Romulan commander and the commander turns towards the camera, the way the camera zooms in on the Romulan commander and the way the camera zooms in on Spock and Spock's reaction, you know, I thought about it, like while you were describing the scene, like why didn't he say fascinating? I think, I think the word that Spock would have used in that moment was interesting. Mm. Like, like because there's almost an amusement there, like you said, like it, it's almost like confirming something that we that he voices in a in a scene in the next act about the the heritage of the Vulcans and the Romulans. So it's almost like at that moment his suspicions are confirmed, but styles, 
the way he just jumps up, though he he jumps up from his navigation console, that the concern that he just gave to his captain in a way, in a demeanor that was completely out of line for a lieutenant yeah. to talk to his commanding officer. But Kirk was cool and he took it and he listened. He listened to opinions. And the way he just had his concerns, his his fears, his paranoia based on his own family history with the Romulans. At that moment, it's confirmed. And that sting shot on act one with Kirk looking directly ahead at the view screen and the lighting on, on Shatner's face, Finnerman's lighting on his face and Styles is locked on on Spock. He's staring at Spock. Kirk is staring at the Romulan commander and that, that great music sting from uh, Fred Steiner, the way it, it, it just stings out on Act One. It just like... I, I mean, it's ah, it's just such a powerful, powerful, iconic moment that still holds as much drama and suspense after 55 freaking years. It's amazing. And this is another one of our threads. Another one of our threads is Styles' racism and his distrust of Spock. And this is something that is going to be advanced throughout this entire story. So I had to look up Mark Leonard because I didn't really know a lot about him. Um, he's the child of Russian Jewish immigrants. So we have another Jewish uh, Star Trek person. He was a paratrooper in World War II, reached the rank of technical sergeant, and it was actually in the army that he started acting. He came back from the war, did a lot of theater in New York. He did a lot and particularly doing classical theater, which is so clear in his performance. Lots of Chekhov, lots of Ibsen, lots of Shaw. His first big acting role was acting for director and actor John Gielgud in Much Ado About Nothing. So this is a guy with some real theater cred. And what's so interesting is we see the Romulan interaction is they use, they have heightened language. They're not speaking in casual American English. They're speaking in more dramatic period sounding English, which is another great touch. Um, in act two, we go right back into the moment where we left it. Styles is staring at Spock. Like he's not just looking at Spock. Like when we ended act one, Styles was fixated on, on Spock with shock and horror. Now he's staring Spock down. Like he's yeah. staring at him down because if you notice at one point during that moment when Styles is staring at Spock, it's almost like Spock can feel the stare and Spock yeah. turns around. And Kirk, I love this move because Styles is staring at Spock. He's sitting at navigation, but he is not paying attention to his panel. And Kirk walks by, and I love this move, a great little bit of leadership, just subtly taps the navigation panel. Like pay attention. And then we hear that this message, there's an encrypted message, and Styles says, Give it to Spock. Not Mr. Spock. But the way he says it, okay, it's such a derogatory, demeaning, uh, degrading, and totally inappropriate way to re refer to your superior officer. But he's not looking at Spock like his superior officer, like Lieutenant Commander Spock is. He's looking at, oh, this guy's a Romulan. You know, the bigotry, the the prejudice, 
that has been so ingrained in him against the Romulans. And now the Romulans, so lo and behold, they look just like the Vulcans, and this Vulcan could be a Romulan or at least a Romulan spy. And it's confirming everything that he thought up to this point. Didn't quite get that, Mr. Sam. Nothing, sir. Repeat it. I was suggesting that Mr. Spock could probably translate it for you, sir. I assume you're complimenting Mr. Spock on his ability to decode. I'm not sure, sir. This is, Shatner is perfect here. This is where, like for every anyone who criticizes Shatner's acting, I always think, watch this episode, because this episode is perfect. Kirk kind of like nods, like, okay. And then he gets, he gets in Stiles' face. He, he kneels down. He pushes his chair around. So Stiles is in his face, or he's in Stiles' face. And he says, Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, mister. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? And Stiles, his response, it's, it's what it should have been all along. One of respect. You do, sir. Such a, <laughs> such a great moment. <laughs> it's a fantastic moment. Two things about it. The first is, what, one of the things that occurred to me is like, in Corbomite Maneuver, we had a navigator who also was had to evolve emotionally, had to mature. In that case, he it was Bailey who was overexcited and got scared and got a little panicky. And Kirk was in the position of, how do I... Bring this person along. How do I help them become the navigator they need to? And here we have another navigator. The problem is very different, is that he is prejudiced against Mr. Spock at this point, and of course against Romulans. And this is, again, it's a thing later on in Star Trek, we will say, we got past racism and prejudice. We don't have anything like that here anymore. And what that is saying to me is, we're no longer human. You know, and it's f- so funny because we just discussed Star Trek Six on the Cinephiles and racism and prejudice is really key to that story because mm-hmm. you watch your kid get killed by the Klingons and yeah, you might end up having new feelings about the Klingons. Styles was raised by a family where ha- half of his ancestors were wiped out by the Romulans and he's heard those stories. And so he's a human. He has feelings that are not necessarily the right ones that he has to learn to get past. Um, it's a great, great, great moment. Something visual ahead, Captain. At extreme range. And Kirk and Sulu are fixated on the screen. And this is actually the perfect transition to the next scene. Because just as as Kirk is fixated on the Romulan, we said that the Romulans are fixated on this, this ship that is pursuing them. No visible attend the cloaking system. Consumes much power, Commander, with no enemy to concern us. That Earth outpost called to an Earth vessel, now it follows us. Which neither retreats nor grows near, which turns as we turn. Commander, it is our judgment we run from a reflection. Perhaps so, but my judgment prevails. Well, now we're on the Romulan Bridge, which looks very different from the Enterprise Bridge. The Enterprise Bridge is open. It's, it's much, much more lit. The lighting a.k.a. the brilliant cinematography of Jerry Finnerman is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the way he lights, lights the Romulan bridge, the way certain lights are fading in and out, and also the design of the Romulan bridge is like that of a submarine with the, uh, the Romulan uh, officers standing around the console and looking at it like a periscope. 
So again, clearly this episode was very much inspired by the enemy below. It was it was very, very obvious in, in memos that went around between Gene Rodberry, Stan Robertson, Robert Justman. It was very obvious in, and it was a badge of honor that this episode was so inspired by the submarine feel of the enemy below. It's it's a lot smaller than the Enterprise Bridge. So you've got the claustrophobia of a submarine. And then also you have these really cool uniforms designed by Bill Tice, who designed the wardrobe for Star Trek. We are finally seeing dialogue between the Romulan commander, whose name we never know, and his centurions on the bridge. So here's, here's a, I don't know if you know this. Do you know the casting story of Mark Leonard and Lawrence Montaigne played Decius? The Romulan kind of wanted to, to take over command of the ship. No, I don't know the casting. I no, have me. a great story. Steve, wait till you hear the story. This is a doozy. So Mark Leonard and Lawrence Montaigne are both playing Romulans in Balance of Terror. In the second season, they would play Vulcans on Star right. Trek. Mark Leonard would play Sarek in Journey to Babel, and Lawrence Montaigne would play Stan in A Mock Time, which was the first episode to air for the second season. Now, when Star Trek started, it was William Shatner's show. But when Star Trek ended its first season, it was not William Shatner's show. It was almost Leonard Nimoy's because Leonard Nimoy was getting a lot more fan mail. And the Spock character was originally sort of a secondary character, is now clearly a very, very big fan favorite, has an incredible following, and clearly is equal to Captain Kirk and William Shatner. So Leonard Nimoy knew this because based on the fan mail he was getting, which was thousands of letters a week. So by the end of the first season, Nimoy was not happy with his uh, his deal, his his pay, which I believe was, are you ready for this? $1,250 per episode. Wow. Which even by 1966 standards is really, really, really low. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine making that kind of money today on a big TV show? <laughs> but so Leonard Nimoy wanted to use his popularity use the leverage of Spock as leverage to negotiate a better deal for a second season. In other words, he wanted more money. But instead of Desilu, which produced the show, and NBC, which broadcast the show, instead of them saying, yeah, sure, no problem, whatever you want, or we want to make you happy, they considered, well, if he doesn't want to stay and he wants too much money, We'll just get someone else to play Spock or we'll get some other Vulcan character to be on the bridge. And Spock will not will not last as a character beyond the first season. And neither will Leonard Nimoy. And two of the actors that were seriously considered to play Spock starting in season two, two of those actors were Mark Leonard and Lawrence Montaigne. And as it turned out, Leonard Nimoy did get a pay raise. They doubled his salary from $1,250 per episode to $2,500 per episode. Still nothing, but certainly they doubled his salary. So Leonard Nimoy stayed. Mark Leonard played Spock's father, and Lawrence Montaigne played Stan 
in uh, in a mock time. But Lawrence Montaigne over Mark Leonard was actually more in discussions to either take over as Spock or play a new character completely. And when that didn't happen, they gave him the character of Stan as a way to sort of like, hey, we still we still really like you. So while you were talking, I had to look it up. So 1250 in 1966 dollars is equal to $10,147.15 today. So that's how much he was getting paid. And that's still for for a character like that on a show like Star Trek, is it's yeah. still nothing. I know they are following. If an Earth ship, why does he not attack? First study the enemy, seek weakness. If I were their commander, that is what I would do. What we were talking about at the top of this uh, top of this episode about how the 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 enemy is more like us than than not like us, and the way that. Kirk and the Romulan commander are in each other's heads and they respect each other. And just like you have tension on the bridge of the enterprise between the captain and another officer. Now we are seeing tension between the Romulan commander and another officer. A message was dispatched. You've broken the rule of silence. Only in code commander. To inform our prayer to have this glorious mission. Your carelessness might have ended this glorious mission. You're reduced two steps in rank. Return to post. So we are seeing a like a, a literally so many things between the Romulans and the Enterprise that mirror each other. Th- these are the threads that I'm talking about, and this is the thing: is like frequently what happens in less good screenwriting is you're just busy telling the story, and it doesn't really matter who says what. We don't have a lot of interpersonal conflicts. In this episode, is filled with interpersonal conflicts and relationships, because the other one we see here is our commander talking to an older man who is the centurion, and it's obvious that they've been friends for a long time, and this is the parallel really with McCoy, you know, that this is another person that the commander can confide in, And the first thing he says is, Take care, Commander. He has friends, and friends of his kind mean power, and power is danger. And I love Mark Leonard's great in every line he says. Danger and I are old companions. We've seen a hundred campaigns together, and still I do not understand you. I think you do. No need to tell you what happens the moment we reach home with proof of the Earthmen's weakness. And we will have proof. The Earth Commander will follow, he must. And when he attacks, we will destroy him. It's such a great scene. And in just a few lines, we learn so much about Romulan culture. Because, of course, here we have to introduce an entire alien race. And what are they all about? And I think one of the first choices they make that's really smart is there is definite connections to Rome beyond the words Romulus and Remus. We hear about praetors and centurions and things like that. And then we also hear this thing where we're talking about if the earth vessel is weaker. The humans are weaker. And the commander says, Our gift to the homeland, another war. If we are the strong, is this not the signal for war? And that tells us a lot about this culture, which is that the stronger must attack the weaker. Let's look at the differences here between Kirk and the Romulan commander. So this episode depicts Kirk as a a little more war-weary, so to speak, feeling the burden of command, not necessarily in front of his crew, but definitely with McCoy later in the episode. Now, the Romulan commander, not only is he war-weary, he is burned out. Death and more death. Soon even enough for the Praetor's test. Centurion, 
I find myself wishing for destruction before we can return. He is ready to be done, and yet the thing that keeps him going is duty. No matter how he feels, he is going to do his duty based on that culture. Were I not, like you, I'm too well-trained in my duty to permit it. Continue evasive maneuvers. Now, back to the first course. The parallels between Kirk and the Romulan commander and their differences are, are really interesting to observe, but it is ultimately the parallels that make this episode so strong uh, because, again, they are, they are trying to outguess each other, outsmart each other, trying to learn from the mistakes that they made and the other, the other commander saying he's not going to make that same mistake again. It is a, it's a volley going on between Kirk and the Romulan commander. And what's interesting is, is that one of the differences between Kirk and the Romulan commander is that this is a warship. The Romulan bird of prey, this is purely military, whereas the Enterprise has military aspects. It has scientific aspects. It has all it does all sorts of different jobs. Now, one other thing the Romulan ship does have that the Enterprise does not have is a cloaking device, a device that will make it invisible. Now, that is a really cool device to have, but it wasn't just out of the ingenuity of its screenwriter, Paul Schneider, mm. or Gene Roddenberry to say, oh, let's make them even more powerful by having a device that will make them invisible. No, it kind of came down to money. And oh. Bob Justman, uh, Robert H. Justman, the associate producer, was greatly concerned about the budget of this episode to the point where when he read an early draft or an early uh, you know, outline and gave his notes because you know, he was the guy who made sure that every dollar was accounted for, he actually said in a memo, and I quote, I must register strong objections to this project. He was so caught, uh, he was so alarmed by the potential for what this budget on, on this episode could be that he actually recommended in the early beginning in the beginnings of this episode to not move forward with it at all. And it was only, only when he read later drafts that he said, actually, this is a really great episode. But to save money, Gene Roddenberry and Paul Schneider came up with the idea for the cloaking device. And, uh, and that really helped uh, save time and money, particularly when the Enterprise was firing its phasers on the Romulan ship. Now, this is also an episode that that sort of uh, transferred the visual effects uh, for, for the production of Star Trek. Up to this point, most of the visual effects were done by the Howard Anderson Company. But with Balance of Terror, a company called Film Effects of Hollywood took over the visual effects for Star Trek and became the major provider of visual effects for the rest of the series. You know, it's funny. I, I always knew that the transporters were a cost-saving measure. It never occurred to me that a cloaking device was. And of course, obviously, I mean, you think of all the special effects shots they didn't have to do because you couldn't <laughs> see the ship. That is brilliant. And, and it's just like the transporter. You take this problem you have, you figure out a way to save money that actually makes the story better. That's amazing. 
We're back on the bridge. Styles is still a bit grumpy. And we hear that Scotty has some debris from the outpost. And we head down to, I know, one of your favorite sets, which is the briefing room. I love the briefing room. I love <laughs> the scenes in the briefing room. You have so, so many great characters sitting around talking through a situation via their profession. The dialogue is always great. And this scene is no exception. And it starts off on a dramatic note because Spock is holding a piece of debris from Outpost 4, which is uh, it, it is a, a material called cascrogidium, which is the hardest substance known to man. And he just clenches his, his, the palm of his fist and he breaks this, uh, this uh, debris into even more pieces, which is uh, in a way to demonstrate what the Romulan weapon is capable of doing, forcing an implosion of, of even the most stable matter. And we're having a kind of a tactical conversation about their superior weaponry, about the cloaking device, and that's where McCoy jumps in and says, You're discussing tactics. Do you realize what this really comes down to? Millions and millions of lives hanging on what this vessel does next. Or on what this vessel fails to do, Doctor. To me, you could take that conversation, those lines of dialogue, and move them to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan discussing the Genesis Project. It is the same sort of thing. It is just our characters fitting in perfectly to what their roles are. Absolutely. And uh, it is a tactical meeting because not only are they discussing the weaponry of the Romulan ship, they're discussing, like, what do they have that we don't? What do we have that they don't? And the the one thing that the Enterprise has over the Romulan ship is speed because they're operating on simple impulse, and uh, the Enterprise can can go many, many times the speed of light. Meaning we cannot run. To be used in chasing them or retreating. Sir, go ahead, Mr. Stiles. I call this session for opinions. We have to attack immediately. One of the important directions when working with an actor it's almost always a bad idea if the actor thinks the character they're playing is the bad guy. The actor has to think the character they're playing is absolutely 100% right. right. And the actor playing Styles is doing such a good, because he knows, he is certain about the Romulans. He knows what has to happen. And literally the fate of all of humanity, the entire Federation is dependent upon this moment. And that is why he's breaking protocol and being somewhat aggressive. And he says, They're still on our side of the neutral zone. There would be no doubt that they broke the treaty. It's a very, very clear argument. And then Sulu's just having the technical discussion of how are we going to fire at them without being able to see them? Aim with sensors. Not accurate, but if we blanket them, we can... I know it's for a lucky shot before they zero in on us. And if we don't, once back, they'll report that we saw their weapons and ran. And if they could report that they destroyed us. It's a great, great scene. He's addressing the urgency to, to everyone in the room. These are Romulans. You run away from them and you guarantee war. They'll be back, not just one ship, but with everything they've got. But then he gets at Spock's face. You know that, Mr. Science Officer. You're the expert in these people. But you've always left out that one point. Why? I'm very interested in why. Again, clearly breaking rank, talking to him in a completely derogatory and inappropriate manner. And what I love about the scene, like as Styles. Like he, he, this time he gets up out of his, out of his chair and he leans forward on the table, on the, the briefing room table. And he kind of gets in Spock's face and the reaction of Kirk, Kirk is sitting there 
and he's he's just taking in the moment. He's observing the situation, looking back and forth between Spock and Styles, and and then when Styles finishes his rant, Kirk just says real calmly, "Sit down, Mister." He's such a model leader. And one other thing to pay attention to this moment, it's really small, is standing, sitting behind Kirk's right shoulder is McCoy. And watch DeForest Kelly. Because one of the things about acting is that you're not, people think you're only acting when you say the lines. That's not true. You have to always be in the moment of the scene. And as a guy who's edited films, Having actors that are always in it, are always active, makes such a huge difference as an editor because you feel safe cutting to them. And what McCoy is doing in this moment is watching Kirk and going, oh, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to handle it? And it's one of the things about McCoy's character that I love is is that as much as he can be irascible and grumpy, he loves Jim Kirk and I think is fascinated by Kirk. I think that's part of his character. And we get this moment where Styles has been pushing Spock really hard because he thinks Spock is on the side of the Romulans. And Spock, in an incredibly unexpected moment, says, I agree. Attack. It's a great turn in the scene. Yeah, and it's it's such a great turn because like Styles is kind of like speechless. No one says anything because that was not what anyone expected Spock to say. But Spock's reasoning to attack is logical and Nimoy's performance in the whole episode is great, but uh, his performance here is, is amazing because he's not just talking logically. He's, he's making his point. Like there is definitely a, a, a sternness to his voice uh, and, and Nimoy plays it just right because he doesn't lay it on too thick. But when he says, Weakness is something we dare not show. And the way he inflects the words, dare not show. Why is he saying we can't show weakness? This is what's the most interesting thing to me, is he says, if they are an offshoot of the Vulcans, if they are, if if I am in fact related to these guys, then we have to attack because now we find out this other piece of information that we never knew. Vulcan, like Earth, had its aggressive colonizing period. Savage, even by Earth standards. And if the Romulans retain this martial philosophy, then weakness is something we dare not show. So that adds so much to Spock's character because we know that Spock is half human. We know that Spock is trying to be always be logical. We've seen the conflict within him in Naked Time. And now what we hear is that, oh, his ancestors, they, logic isn't built into the Vulcans. Logic is something that they chose, that they trained for. And the Romulans might be just like them who, who made a different choice. That is, to use Mr. Spock's word, fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> so they're, they're going to, they're going to attack and, and they, they're Kirk asks, so like, what's, what's ahead of us. And Spock says, it's a, it's a comet. And uh, Kirk just happens to have a book of comments on his uh, right it's in front re- of him. It's really weird. This, is, it, this bit doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work. I get what they were trying to do. I mean, first of all, if you want to, if if you want to know information about what's ahead of you, you got the ship's computer, which knows everything. But Kirk happens to have a book of comments in front of him, so he pushes the book over to Spock, <laughs> yes. and he says, "Like, oh, what's the composition of the comet?" So Spock could look it up and say, "Oh, this is what it is." And Spock just kind of like pushes the book back to him 
and says it's quite ordinary, and he <laughs> describes the contents of it. Yeah, this like like why I, what, what the hell is Kirk doing with a book of comments? <laughs> I totally understand what they were trying to do. Yeah, they were trying to show that Spock is so smart he does it. He knows all this stuff without even looking at the book. But it's so weird. This I I have a book sitting here for no particular reason. I hand you. I give try to give you the book, and you go, No, no, I don't need the book. Totally, it's totally doesn't work. It might that might be the only thing in this entire episode that I think doesn't work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's like the one thing. But it, it's like you're, you're watching this like uh, otherwise perfect episode, and then here's this moment like like he's a book of comments in front of him. I mean, like what's he doing with a book in front of him? I mean, I we haven't even met Samuel T. Cox, the attorney at law, yet to give, him, <laughs> to give him all those books yet. But what they do ascertain is if the invisible Romulan ship goes through the comet's tra- tail, it will leave a visible trail. Our chance, gentlemen. Prepare to attack. All hands, battle stations. And as they are all leaving the briefing room, Kirk isn't quite confident that this is the right decision, and he's feeling the burden of his decision. I hope we won't need your services, brother. Amen to that. Taking a big gamble, Jim. Kirk regains his composure, walks out of the briefing room, and with Sulu is walking down the very busy corridor of the Enterprise at battle stations. I just love that scene, that music sting, which actually came from The Naked Time. It was uh, the end of Act One when Mm. uh, uh, Riley realizes he has the disease. That's where the music came from. And... Uh, it's a great way to end act two. I think Shatner's performance is so great because he's keeping it together while everyone's there in the meeting. And then the minute everyone leaves, you could see the weight of the command on him. And this is another thread. And we established at the beginning, every the whole future of the galaxy depends on the choices made by this crew. And in particular, this captain, the level of pressure that he's under that he can't show except in a few very small moments. Uh, it's act three. We can see that comet. We're working on our plan. The moment he begins entering the comet's tail, he becomes visible. Engron, gentlemen, will swing around the other side and catch him at that moment. Acknowledge, Captain. And now we cut to the Romulan ship. And just in a really small moment, the first thing our commander says is looking at the natural beauty of the comet. Behold a marvel in the darkness. Again, it's poetic, and it's there are all these things that are making us really like this guy. And what's interesting is they have a similar tactic because they're going, we're going to use this comet because it's going to blind their sensors, and then we can turn back on them and attack them. And so both captains are using the comet in a similar way. Kirk thinks he's got this all figured out. And the the great thing about it is that the Romulan commander knows that Kirk has this all figured out. And the Romulan commander outsmarts Kirk, outguesses Kirk, and pulls a quick escape maneuver because the reflection had disappeared. And the Romulan commander pulls a move that even Kirk did not did not ascertain what happened. Escape maneuver one, quickly. And what's so interesting is he pulls that move because Kirk didn't do what he expected. Is like he realizes Kirk's plan, he changes his plan. It's this back and forth that's so great. And now we go back to the bridge of the Enterprise where they're 
coming around that comet expecting to see the Romulan bird of prey. And we have Kirk and Spock and Sulu in a great three shot. And this is where it really hit me at this moment, particularly watching this episode of just how theatrical this show is, is that there's so many times, particularly in this episode, where you have two shots or three shots where it's two faces close together looking the same way. Most of the time, if I'm shooting, you're shooting dialogue, you're shooting conversations, I have two people looking towards each other. These are, we're going to have our characters walk into positions that are really super, super dramatic and very, very theatrical. Um, and of course, what happens on the bridge is almost exactly what just happened on the Romulan ship. Sir, nothing in the last moment. He must, must have guessed our move. Hard to start with help. Hard to start It's exactly what I would have done. I won't underestimate him again. Now, this is where we see the Enterprise fire its phasers. First of all... It's phasers. <laughs> it's phasers, yeah. Phasers, quote-unquote, because we're actually they're actually firing our photon torpedoes. Now, look, this is this is still early in the series. They're still trying to figure out like what the difference is between phasers and photon torpedoes. But for the sake of this episode, or the photon torpedoes are phasers. Now, this was another move that was done to make the Enterprise and the episode itself feel like a destroyer pursuing a submarine. The Enterprise phasers are fired through a chain of command. Kirk says, Now, fire blind, lay down a pattern. Then Stiles addresses the phaser control room. Virus pattern, all phasers fire. And then there's a Tomlinson, and in the phaser control room. Fire, phaser one, fire. Now, when you're watching an old World War II movie, they're releasing depth charges that's how they do it. It is a chain of command to fire its weapons or to release depth charges. And when the phasers are fired, photon torpedoes are fired, and they you see them explode, they explode like depth charges, like they're right. the photon, like they're they're feeling out like where the enemy ship is. This was another great example of Gene Roddenberry and screenwriter Paul Schneider making this episode feel like Run Silent, Run Deep. Totally. And on the Romulan ship, it's so interesting because Kirk thought he was making a smart move. The Romulans thought he was making a smart move. The Romulan saw Kirk's smart move, made a new move. Kirk saw the Romulan didn't do what he thought, and he made a new move. And now Kirk is firing on the Romulans, and then the Romulan ship is shaking, and there's wreckage, and our centurion, our older gentleman, the McCoy-type figure on the Romulan ship, pushes the commander away and gets crushed by some heavy thing coming down from the ceiling. The Romulan commander didn't see that the debris was about to fall on him, which is why the centurion uh, pushes him out of the way, saving the Romulan commander's life. Now the Romulans divert all power to weapons and back on the bridge of the Enterprise, and suddenly the Romulan ship appears on screen right in front of the Enterprise. Captain, are they surrendering? The minute he sees them decloak, he makes, and this is why we see these two great commanders back and forth, each anticipating what is about to happen. The Enterprise can't fire back, so Kirk orders, Pull astern. Emergency warp. And at that moment, the Romulan ship fires its huge, massive 
weapon against the Enterprise. I always thought, even as a kid with the old special effects, that this was such a scary thing, this huge weapon coming towards us, and we're going back as fast as we possibly can. I'm not entirely sure why we can't turn a little bit and maybe get out of the way, but we're going back as fast as we can as this thing is coming at us. We can't destroy it with phasers because our phasers aren't working. And in comes Yeoman Rand. And she asks in the midst of this moment, like we're about to die, should I continue log entries? And Kirk has a moment of like, Yeoman. And then there's a pause. And then this is, you know, we're back to duty because he says, Affirmative, continue log entries. Yes, sir. 10 seconds to impact. But it's starting to dissipate, and Rand gets real close up to Kirk, and they kind of snuggle in the last moments. Captain, dissipating, sir. It must have a range limit. And then the Romulan weapon hits. Limited range. Spock has fixed the phasers. The lighting is super dramatic. The Romulan ship has gone back to its old course. Now it's like maybe the Romulan ship thinks that the Enterprise has been destroyed. And I love Kirk's line. This is setting up these parallels. I wouldn't make that assumption. I don't think that captain will either. And then he orders Sulu to go back to the same thing as before. Act like a reflection, an echo. On the Romulan ship, our commander is caring for the Centurion, who is obviously gravely injured. Commander, the reflection returns. Activate our cloak. Commander, our fuel runs low. Quickly. The Earth vessel? Impossible. And again, it's like this guy is questioning our commander's orders. Its commander is not one to repeat a mistake. Back on the bridge, Spock, I love the moment where Spock is sort of leaning over Styles, and there's like, dude, why are you so close to me? Yeah, um, Styles looks back at him like, okay, keep your distance. <laughs> and we find out that we are one minute from the neutral zone. And this is the key question. We heard at the beginning, under no circumstances is the Enterprise supposed to cross the neutral zone, that this ship is expendable. We can't start a war. And now we're at the question. Do we violate the treaty, Captain? They did, Doctor. Once inside, they can claim we did. A setup. They want war. We furnish the provocation. We're still on our side, Captain. Let's get them while we are. Full ahead, Mr. Sudo. Maximum war. And they open fire. The Roman ship is getting the crap kicked out of it. Yeah. And the Romulan commander is sitting by the Centurion and he's not giving any orders. And Decius is being very frantic. I will tend to the Centurion. No need. Centurion is dead. And then he gets up, he composes himself. It is time. All debris into disposal tubes. Yes, Commander. The body of the Centurion, too. So he's going to do the old fakeroo, where he's going to fire the debris out into space and hope that the Enterprise thinks that the Romulan ship has been destroyed. Forgive me, my old friend, but I must use all my experience now to get home. So first of all, because I literally just watched Run Silent, Run Deep, that is in Run Silent, Run Deep, putting the bodies in the debris to try to make it look like you've, uh, like you've been destroyed. And the other thing here, what's amazing about this episode, particularly at this point, is we have such real sympathy for, I won't even say the bad guy, for our adversary. Exactly. Is that he obviously has lost probably his best friend and he has deep compassion for this person. And yet he still is going to send this guy's body out in space to save the ship. We are totally not, it's not like, Oh, we got to get those guys. It is. Oh, 
They're just like us. And this brings up a thing, which maybe we'll talk about later on the series. One of the mistakes I think later Star Trek makes to some degree is they make the decision that each different alien species has a specific personality. Vulcans are logical. Klingons are warlike. Ferengi are greedy. And and what that does is like, even though this is a totally anti-racist show, it almost creates a racist circumstance where you go like, these guys are all alike. And in this episode with the Romulans, they are human. They are just, they each have their own, yes, they're part of a culture that cares about duty and honor and is, is somewhat militaristic, but as individuals, they are totally individuals. And that's one of the things I think makes this episode great. You're right. It's wrong to describe the Romulans as the enemy. They're the adversary. And the Romulan commander is a very empathetic character especially in the ways that he does relate to Kirk, but also in the sense that he is mourning the loss of his colleague, his comrade, companion, and his probably, like you said, his oldest and dearest friend. But also he's a smart guy. Debris scattering ahead, sir. We've hit him, Mr. Spock. Vessel wreckage, metal molds, conduit, plastiform, and a body, Captain. However, however, insufficient mass, sir. What? Not a vessel. A trick. Go to sensor probes. Nothing, sir. No motion out there at all. We've lost them, Captain. Again, it's a great way to end Act 3. I think it's a great ending to the act. This is one small thing I don't think makes sense. I don't think it's a problem with the show. Is at this moment, why doesn't the Romulan ship just... They're right at the border of the neutral zone. Why don't they just leave? But instead, they hang around, which is, of course, what we need for Act 4. And we come back. (laughs) And Spock is making repairs. It's obviously been a long time. This is very submarine-ish because the thing that they're creating is the idea, like in a submarine, that they could actually hear each other. That if they make the slightest noise, Mm -hmm. that they will hear each other, which we're in the middle of space. I don't quite know how that works exactly. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And we go back to the Romulan ship. And they're sitting quietly. And, of course, Decius thinks they must be gone. He's been fooled. He's there. Somewhere. I feel it. We're back on the Enterprise now. And we are in Kirk's quarters. And they've been there motionless for nine hours. And Rand comes into Kirk's quarters. I I love the scene. That in the middle of all this urgency, there's a moment of, of quiet. This is where the episode catches its breath, so to speak. Can I get you something from the galley, sir? Coffee, at least? Thank you, Yola. Bring it to the bridge. I'll be there in a moment. And at that moment, McCoy walks in. And when McCoy walks in, Kirk looks up and gives McCoy a smile. Like, the, the, the feeling behind that smile is of relief, of comfort, that his friend... His trusted friend has just walked in. And both McCoy and Rand look at Kirk like they are both very concerned about him. And Rand excuses herself and walks out. So one of the weird things about watching these shows and doing this with you is that I'm watching them in a totally different way. And in particular, I'm watching them in production order and I'm paying a lot of attention. And 
I never fully understood where the relationship with Yeoman Rand was going until watching it this way. And I suddenly went, okay, we were just, we know there's an attraction between them. We saw it in the naked time. We've seen it other places. And we even, even with enemy within, we see the attraction to them all in a very difficult and painful way. We were just on the bridge where at a moment where we maybe were about to die, he put his arm around her and now he's lying down on his bed in his quarters and she walks in and Part of what I suddenly went is, oh, their attraction is really strong. And the woman that he maybe is in love with has, in this vulnerable, exhausted moment, has literally just walked into his room while he's lying on bed. And so when McCoy comes in in the next moment and he's getting up, yes, he's getting up because of his duty. Yes, he's getting up because he can't show weakness. But McCoy's smile, he looks from Rand to Kirk. The smile isn't just about compassion. It's also about this relationship because I think McCoy knows about this attraction. And so I suddenly saw this whole scene in a completely different way. And this was the moment where you had mentioned this before in previous episodes that I really, truly mourned the fact that they got rid of Rand, that they actually, there was something really interesting happening here. And then we get to the, after Rand leaves to the next part of the scene and man, yeah, I think McCoy does know that there's something there. He alluded to it back in the beginning with uh, the Corbomite maneuver when he said, what's the matter, Jim? Don't you trust yourself? Kirk's bio, his bio feedback between when Rand is there and McCoy walks in, his body language completely changes. And he's looking at McCoy. He looks up at him and he's got this it's like this comforting smile on his face, like he's relieved, like he's like comforted by the fact that his doctor, that his friend McCoy has walked into the room. And the scene that follows, the dialogue that follows is so deep and heartfelt and profound and poignant. And is, it is just one of Star Trek's very, very best scenes between Kirk and McCoy here. Now, originally the dialogue back and forth between Kirk and McCoy was going to have Kirk say something like, who am I to make this decision? You know, I'm just one person. How am I supposed to decide uh, whether or not we have a right to go to war? But it was, it was Roddenberry and it was his, his idea. Gene Roddenberry suggested to Paul Schneider, make it more personal, make it deeper. So instead of who am I, I'm just one person to make this ultimate decision. We have, why me? Why me? I look around that bridge. I see the men waiting for me to make the next move. And Bones, what if I'm wrong? And it's such a beautiful moment of vulnerability. And he tells McCoy, I'm not really looking for an answer. And then... McCoy gives him one. And it's such a beautiful line. I don't really expect an answer. But I've got one. Something I seldom say to a customer, Jim. In this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, three million million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. And he has his hand on Kirk's shoulder, and Kirk is just looking at him with a with a smile. Like that's 
That's what he needed. That's what that smile was asking for. I'm with you. I think this scene and that speech McCoy makes, I could just picture DeForest Kelly when he got the script, because there's moments where you're like, oh, I get to say that. I get to have that moment. And what's so interesting to me is, I, you know, we've always known the relationships, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, they're the big three, and he has, you know, and McCoy and Spock argue. And But now what I'm seeing, and it's particularly because we literally just did Star Trek VI, the movie for the cinephiles. And in that movie, there's the scene where they're in prison in Ruripente, and Kirk, again, exposes his vulnerability to Bones, you know? And it's like, oh... You're the guy that has to be strong all the time. And the one place that you're comfortable showing some vulnerability isn't with Spock. It's with McCoy. And so in addition to McCoy bringing up the emotional humanist side of the argument against Spock's logical side of the argument, it's this is a person he trusts in a deep way. And Kirk needed to hear that. He needed that. It was so important for him to go up and face what he has to face. So when Star Trek Beyond came out, 2016, in the beginning of Star Trek Beyond, it's Kirk's birthday. He's feeling kind of down. And near the beginning of the film, there is a scene between Kirk and McCoy. Kirk played by Chris Pine. McCoy played by Carl Urban. This is the thing that made me feel like Star Trek Beyond was actually a real Star Trek movie, was how much that scene was a great parallel to the scene in Balance of Terror that we are talking about now between Kirk and McCoy. And I absolutely think that Simon Pegg and Doug Young, who wrote Star Trek Beyond, were absolutely inspired by the moment between Kirk and McCoy in Balance of Terror. And we head back up onto the bridge. It's quiet. Spock is working on whatever this thing is below his station. He does something with a tricorder. The camera tracks across the room. The music is building. The tension is building. Spock reaches up and hits a button that makes a noise. It's all right. And it just is really shocking in this quiet moment. And man, who reacts the most is Styles. Styles thought it was deliberate. Yep. Yep, because he still is not sold on the fact that that he's not a spy. He still has yeah. his suspicion, suspicions that, that, that he is. But it, this is where the episode just demonstrates how well-written it is, is that it keeps that drama going. Yep. It adds something else to the story to keep it moving forward and keep it going. We have him. Move toward him. And it's like, here's this moment where the Romulans think that they have the Enterprise where they want them because Spock, of all people, messed up. And they're moving in, but no. At that moment, Kirk opens fire. Oh, Commander, how? And I love Mark Leonard's line. He's a sorcerer, that one. He reads the thoughts in my mind. You are beaten. It'd be true. The Praetor's finest and proudest flagship beaten. Just like Kirk, the commander is going to grab victory out of the hands of defeat. Perhaps we can yet save your freighter's pride. And now this is where the Romulan commander decides to pull the old switcheroo or the trickaroo with the debris. (laughs) Only this time, you know, he's going to put the old nuclear warhead. When Spock was talking about uh, the Romulan conflict in the first act, he said how the Romulan conflict with the Federation was fought, was uh, conducted with old nuclear technology. 
Right. And they still have one of those old nuclear devices on the Romulan ship. And the commander says, put it in the disposal tube along with the debris. Debris on our scanners. Analysis, quickly. Same type as before, sir, except one metal cased object. Helm, hard over. Phasers, fire, point blank. Phasers, fire! And they fire just in the nick of time. A hundred meters away, a nuclear device was detonated from the Enterprise. They are lucky to be alive, but it sends the Enterprise into a, a, a very, very shocking motion uh, because a nuclear device just went off. And at that moment, when the Enterprise is at its most vulnerable, the Romulan commander says, we go home. And Decius says, I remind you of your duty. And it's just, these are these threats. It's just like Styles, is that he's going to push him to violence. Back on the Enterprise, we hear that there's some some injuries, there's some radiation burns. And basically, we got overloads and burnouts, but we got pretty darn lucky. Our only phaser is the forward phaser room, and Tomlinson is there alone. And Styles jumps up and says, Sir, my first assignment was in weapons control. Go. Lieutenant Uhura, take over navigation. Again, we have Uhura fully qualified. I mean, I just think it's so great. And I wish, and this is a thing I wish we had more of. I wish we had more of Uhura doing cool stuff in the series. When Uhura sits down at the navigation station, the look that Sulu gives her. Mm. Like, Sulu's not focused on his console. He's not looking straight ahead. When she, when she sits down at navigation, and Sulu is, like, checking her out, I wonder, what is he thinking? Is he looking at her with pride and being like, that is really cool? Or that is, I'm glad you're here. Is there an attraction there? I don't know. What do you think he's thinking? You know what's so funny is as we're doing this, and maybe I'll keep it, put this in or maybe I won't. You know, I have all these notes. And as I'm going along, sometimes I skip over notes. Literally, I have a note that says, Sulu looks at Uhura. What is he thinking here? <laughs> I swear to God, that is what it says. Yeah. Um, what is he uh, thinking? Like, I, I, I still to this day can't quite figure out what he's thinking. Well, my first thought was that he's just like, oh, Uhura is really good. Great. You know, we're friends. She's she's going to be at that station. That's awesome. But then the other thought that I had is mirror, mirror, where there's clearly a Sulu attraction to Uhura in the mirror universe. And so maybe there's something else that was they were thinking there. Um, well, if Sulu, if Sulu acted on his attraction in Mirror Mirror, maybe he's attracted to her in this universe too, yeah. but he's just, you know, being obviously a lot more courteous about it. That's what I was thinking too. And now we have, again, another command decision. We could back off and Kirk says, no, hold our position, play dead. And then you see the order and then you see how tired Kirk is because all of these decisions are, Life and death. Back on the Romulan ship, the commander is arguing to go home. We've damaged ourselves. Our fuel reserve is gone. And then Mandesius makes this move. If you refuse, permit me the glory of the kill, Commander. And there's a reaction, and the commander knows he has to do what he has to do. We will attack. But on my order. Yeah, he's pressured into the attack, and that becomes... This uh, vessel's undoing, as it turns out. We're back on the Enterprise, and we're in the phaser control room, and Spock offers to help because they're, they're 
down personnel, and it's Tomlinson and Styles. And Styles looks at Spock. This time we'll handle things without your help, Vulcan. Again, total disregard for the chain of command. Spock exits the control room, and Tomlinson is looking at Styles like, like, whoa, did you really yeah, just dude. talk to the first <laughs> officer of the Enterprise like that? As the Spock leaves the room, we see that there is a phaser coolant leak with purple smoke. Tomlinson. That cannot be good. And Styles yeah. looks up in horror at this, and Tomlinson jumps into action. And then we're back on the bridge. Enemy vessel getting visible. Forward phasers. Stand by. Just as the Romulan ship is completely 100% visible. Fire. But there's no fire. And Kirk says, fire. fire. Styles, can you hear me? Fire. Fire. And Spock is hearing this. And the way he turns around and comes to the rescue, sacrificing himself. It's such a great scene. It's almost Wrath of Khanish. We we need to fix something. Spock goes into the room that's really dangerous. He gets in there, and obviously whatever this gas is is affecting him too, and he runs in and he fires. And it's important, by the way, that he doesn't go to help Stiles or Tomlinson first. The first thing he has to do is fire. And we end up on the Romulan ship where they scream. There's a lot of wreckage. And now, like the Enterprise was at an angle after the nuclear bomb, now the Romulan ship is sitting there at an angle. Now, being at an angle in the middle of space doesn't really mean anything, but still, it looks really cool. Um, And Sulu's ready to move in. And Kirk says, ship to ship. And we see the wreckage on board the Romulan ship. The commander has got his back to us, and then he turns and walks to the monitor. I love even that he has his hands up above, like he's holding on, like he can barely stand. And Kirk says, as he did with the Viserius, you know. Captain, standing by to beam your survivors aboard our ship. Prepare to abandon your vessel. And what what he says in response is one of the best lines ever written in Star Trek. No, that's not our way. I regret that we meet in this way. You and I are of a kind in a different reality. I could have called you friend. Just about this dialogue, and I agree with you, these lines are beautifully, beautifully written and beautifully said. And this is the thing, I said it at the beginning of this episode, is that the Romulans speak in a sort of heightened language, that it isn't casual, colloquial American English. And so these lines, I regret that we meet this way. You and I are of a kind. That is not the way, like if I were going to write that kind of line with the same meaning for a casual, more American way, I would have said, it's too bad you and I never met. We're a lot Mm -hmm. alike. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you and I are of a kind in a different reality. I could have called you friend. That's a very, it's not quite Shakespearean, but it puts the Romulans in a totally different and extremely formal place. And I really love that about the characterization. You got to keep in mind throughout the course of this episode, they have been in each other's heads. They have been impressed with each other's moves. And now they are meeting for the first time. And because of all this history they now have, there's an admiration between the two of them. There is a respect. And the way Kirk says, What purpose will it serve to die? We are creatures of duty, Captain. 
I've lived my life by it. Just one more duty to perform. Now, there was a moment that was shot that was not used in the final episode. So when the Romulan commander says, just one more duty to perform, there's a scene that was shot where Kirk salutes the Romulan Mm. commander. He salutes the Romulan commander and the Romulan commander nods back at Kirk. And then he turns around and pulls the self-destruct. But they did not use the edit where we see Kirk saluting the Romulan. Now, maybe it's because how did Kirk know what the Romulan salute was? But for whatever reason, they did not add that moment in where we see Kirk saluting the commander. I'm glad they didn't. I think I think that would have been one step too far. And then the Romulan ship explodes. And then we're in sickbay and Styles is lying on the bed being examined by McCoy. Spock is there and Kirk makes sure that Spock is all right and then asks how Styles is. And Styles says, I'm alive, sir, but I wouldn't be. Mr. Spock, he pulled me out of the phaser room, saved my life. He risked his life after and then he doesn't finish the sentence. But of course, like all good writing, we know what he was about to say after I was a racist, horrible jerk, you know, some version of how he treated him. And again, this is the resolution of the threat. It's not just that we introduce the guy as a racist, but like Bailey, we take his character through a full character arc. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love Spock's response. I saved a trained navigator so that he could return to duty. I'm capable of no other feelings in such matters. (laughs) Do you believe Spock? uh, You know what? No, I don't because he has a half human side. I think Spock is loving this moment. Personally. He's probably just like, I showed you, huh? Yeah. Uh, You know, you son of a bitch. But uh, (laughs) no, I think that it's a great, it's a great arc for styles. Uh, It's a, you know, Paul, again, Paul Comey did a terrific job, amazing performance in this episode and that you actually do feel empathy for him after he tries to apologize. But when Kirk says, how many men did we lose, Bones? Only one. Tomlinson. The boy who was going to get married this morning. Now, I have no memory of seeing this for the first time. But I can't imagine, if I was watching this in 1966, What? when did it come out? It came out December 15th, 1966. So December 15th, 1966, I'm watching this. And they say, Tomlinson, the boy who was going to get married this morning. Hmm. That's you must have been absolutely crushing, shocking, shocking. Yeah, this guy was and, going to get married fifty minutes ago, and he was the only one to die. And talk about a, a tragedy! It's a Greek tragedy, almost yeah. that this guy was going to get married, and now he's dead. And we started the episode in the chapel with, with a was what was going to be a wedding, and now we are back inside the chapel, which has become a morgue. This first shot, by the way, you know, we've talked on and on about Finnerman's cinematography and and the way it's staged is that Angela Martin's in the foreground. Again, she's kneeling, which is what she did at the wedding, but now she's kneeling in grief. And again, I think that's such good bookends. She's in the foreground facing left to right and the door opens and they're standing really dramatically out of focus. Again, a really interesting choice is Captain Kirk. And he walks forward, coming into focus. She gets up and just falls into Kirk's arms. 
And he, of all the things Kirk has had to do, literally the fate of the galaxy was on his shoulders. And now it's his job to comfort. She's not a widow because they never actually got married. Never makes any sense. You both have to know that there was a reason. Like the fate of the galaxy was at hand, like you said, and yet the grief over the death of one person, the emotional impact of that death, which was supposed to be a, a moment of joy is now a moment of despair. And, you know, Angela Martin, uh, Barbara Baldwin, really, really touching moment. She composes herself and says, I'm all right, sir. And she walks out. And then Kirk is alone in the chapel. He has a moment to himself. He looks around the room, takes it in. He takes a moment to mourn, but then he composes himself, stands upright, walks out of the chapel, down a very busy corridor. He starts the walk down the corridor. He starts slow and he's still looking down, but then as he continues to walk, he picks up his pace, he picks up his stride, his posture gets more, more firm, and he arches his back and he clenches his jaw, his eyes to the horizon. He is moving on. The, and the music that is used at this moment is the music that actually closed out where no man has gone before. So it's mm. Alice in a Courage music uh, score going on here. But it is an, an aspirational moment. It is a it is deeply moving moment. It is an emotional moment, and it is a an absolute a cap to uh, an already phenomenal, brilliant, brilliant episode. I mean, even the the flaws that we discussed, whether it's it's uh, hearing sound in space or having a book of comments, <laughs> you know, this is still an episode that I consider to be a masterpiece. You know, it's so interesting that I'm discovering. And again, here's these shows I know backwards and forwards, and I'm still discovering things. This is what I'm discovering now is that what always drew me to Kirk was he was awesome, was that he was the great leader. He was the adventurer. He was the smart guy who came up with the Cobra Mike maneuver. He could jump kick <laughs> people. He could do, you know, like he was, he got all the girls. He was good looking. He was funny. And when as a kid, like that's who my hero was. Now, as a much older guy and watching these in a different way, what actually fascinates me about Kirk is his vulnerability. It's the other side. It's the side we see little glimpses of, particularly in these first few episodes, before he puts on the face of the captain. Mm-hmm. It's 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 in the naked time. It's it's when he doesn't quite know what to do. It's the moments in Cobra Night where he doesn't know what to do. There's a countdown. He hasn't come up with poker yet. It's all of that humanity that makes the hero so much more impressive. Like I've read so many books about the making of Star Trek. And, uh, you, you know, I know you read the, the three book volume series of uh, These Are the Voyages written by Mark yeah. Cushman. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about those books, I mean, those books are amazing, by the way. I mean, yeah. they're, they're <laughs> the final word. Um, but, you know, when he interviews the, the, the people who have guest starred, the people who are, you know, were still around at the time that he was writing the books, 
whether he's talking to producers or, or people who guest starred on the series, they always say the same thing, I noticed, across the three books. They'll describe Leonard Nimoy as being a little distant, mm-hmm. like he was staying in character, not emotional, so he didn't have to flick on a switch to be Spock. He was still in the moment. And they would always say, now, William Shatner, on the other hand, was totally different. He was like a ball of energy, and he was joking around, and he would be self-deprecating. But the moment the director called action, he would be Captain Kirk. Like, he was able to flip on a dime and change from being William Shatner to Captain Kirk. I just think that that's a reason why this last scene works so well, because of the way he goes from mourning in the chapel. And then when you, it cuts to the next uh, part of the scene. And I think that's a reason why that this, this episode works so well, but you know, I became a Star Trek fan because of Captain Kirk, because Kirk was a hero and still is. And this is a great example. This episode is a great example of the aspirational qualities that made me admire and look up to Kirk and still look up to him 50, all these years later, not 55, I'm only 52. So uh, the final word on this episode, Vincent McAvity, who directed the episode, said, and I quote, it was a morality fantasy play, but terribly gripping. I thought that Mark Leonard's performance was brilliant, as was Bill Shatner's. It was a two-people show, and I felt was real strong. Mark Leonard said, and I quote, the Romulan commander was one of the best roles I ever had on TV. Gene Roddenberry was quoted as saying, that one worked very well. Mark Leonard did well, showing the different layers to that character, a man much like Kirk, but serving on the other side. I have already said so many things about this episode that I love, but what's remarkable to me, there's something that uh, I think I mentioned when we talked about where no man has gone before, which is that Hollywood often believes that you can either do something that's fun and exciting, or you can do something that's about something. And what Star Trek proves in its best episodes is that you can do both is that in addition to being a completely gripping adventure story and uh, and having all these tactics and action and drama it also is an episode that is about racism and prejudice it's also an episode about war it's also an episode that reference that deals with the cold war it's also an episode that humanizes the other side it's also an episode that deals with the vulnerability of your hero and the the pressure and the weight of command and it does all of the, and it even has this amazing sad tragedy where there are these characters who literally have like three lines or four lines in the whole episode. And yet when Tomlinson dies and we're with uh, his bride to be in the chapel, it is genuinely moving. And they do all of this in 50 minutes while also introducing a new alien race, the Romulans technology, like the cloaking device. I mean, there's just so much that happens here and it all is so tight. This is what you can do when you literally don't waste a line. You don't waste a shot. Every single thing is here for a reason. I think it is an incredible piece of television. And I agree 100%. And on top of that, so 
when, you know, when this episode came out in 1966, you had the division between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And you did then, as you do now, you have the division between North Korea and South Korea, another zone uh, between the two. Uh, it is an episode that over the last year, uh, throughout 2020 and into 2021, that we are still dealing with racism, prejudice, hate crimes. And it is an episode that where the, the, the prejudice and the bigotry is still, unfortunately, makes this episode resonate just as strong as it ever did. And everything else that you just said so perfectly. Uh, Balance of Terror is a masterpiece episode, one of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever, ever made, an episode that will hold up even 55 years from now. Can, can I just say one more thing? Because I've yes. been thinking about it. We always talk, you know, I've said many times that Star Trek is hugely influential in the way I look at the world. So for everyone out there listening, and I'm saying this to myself too, that moment where you are absolutely certain that that other person, that other group, that other political party, whatever, that other religion, that other whatever is the enemy. When you are 100% certain, you know exactly who they are and what's wrong with them. That is when you need to think, of the commander in Balance of Terror. That is when you need to take a moment, take a step back and go, am I being Styles or am I being Kirk? <laughs> that is the moment where you need to examine yourself. And that is what I learned from Star Trek. Wow, wow. Well, a lot, a lot, there's a lot to learn from Star Trek and there's a lot that we will continue to learn because we still have a whole lot more to come on Enterprise Incidents. So if you want to reach us, we have a Facebook page, search for Enterprise Incidents. And if you go to our Facebook page right now, you can actually see a rare photo of the scene where Kirk salutes the Romulan commander. Now, again, the scene was cut from the finished episode, but they definitely filmed it. And we have the proof that they filmed it on our Facebook page of Captain Kirk saluting the Romulan commander. So head to our Facebook page. And while you're there, make sure you like our Facebook page so you can be the first to see ultra rare photos from the original series, including behind the scenes stuff. You could be the first to get breaking news about upcoming episodes of Enterprise Incidents and you can share Enterprise Incidents with all of your friends, all of your sci-fi fans, all of your Star Trek fans. And we're going to put up a question for you on Facebook because there's something Scott and I have been wondering about, and we would love to hear your opinion. Okay, so, so here's the question. So we've been talking about styles throughout this episode. So what do you think should have happened to styles after the events of Balance of Terror? He was out of line with Mr. Spock, and he was definitely out of line as well with his commanding officer, Captain Kirk. So what do you think should happen to Styles? And also, while we're at it, is this indeed the same Styles that we see played by another actor as the commander of the USS Excelsior in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock? Head to our Facebook page right now, Enterprise Incidents, and weigh in with your thoughts about Styles, and also weigh in on why you think Balance of Terror holds the rank as one of the very greatest Star Trek episodes ever produced. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show. We're, we're up everywhere now. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We're up on YouTube. It is critical. If you're enjoying the show, take a couple of minutes and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's the only way that people find us. So please, if you're enjoying the show, review us there. Leave comments on YouTube. We've already gotten some great comments and love interacting with you there. Uh, please make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media, post it on your Facebook, on your Twitter, on your Instagram. If you're still using MySpace, that's totally fine. Whatever <laughs> it takes, we really want to make sure we get the word out about enterprise incidents. We need your help to help people find us so we do not stay cloaked. So make sure you follow me <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And you can check out my YouTube channel, which is Scott Mance. You can check me out on some of the episodes of Steve's other show with John Roca called The Cinephiles and check out our two-part conversation on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And speaking of the cinephiles, if you're interested in movies that deal with war, like Balance of Terror, you could check out Patton, Lawrence of Arabia, Spartacus, Dr. Strangelove, which is an incredible Stanley Kubrick film, although a slightly different tone from Balance of Terror. And if you want to reach me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, on SR Morris one on Instagram. Scott, what is happening next on Enterprise Incidents? Okay, well, let's just put it this way, Steve. Balance of Terror is a tough act to follow. There is absolutely no question about it. And the next episode doesn't reach the level, doesn't reach the heights, doesn't reach the brilliancy of Balance of Terror. No, it doesn't. But it is still <laughs> it is still an episode that has its merits. It's still a very enjoyable episode. And it is an episode that I would say uh, covers ground that is covered many, many times throughout Star Trek, not just the original series, but all of the Star Trek shows. And it is probably the first, one of the first, if not the first time that Kirk uses his smarts to talk a computer into killing itself. <laughs> the episode I'm referring to is what are little girls made of? That is next time on Enterprise Incidents. Join us then, and until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>